Holy Lord, we are so um, indebted to you. We need you desperately. We need you desperately, not just simply to give us, Lord, life, but to sustain us every day and to take your word that is bread and, and honey and bring it to our souls. Would you, Holy Spirit, give us hunger now as we come. Give us hunger for your word and give us ears to hear it rightly, to hear the voice of the Savior, not the pastor's voice, but the great shepherd's voice, the great redeemer's voice, so that we might rest in you, our beloved Savior. For we ask in your name. Amen. I was making a marinade that Kim really likes in order to marinate uh, this pork loin uh, that I was going to grill. This was a, a week or so ago. And she gave me this recipe, and I, she said, follow this recipe, I really like it. So she goes off to work, and I make the marinade, and I put the meat in there, you know, and it marinates all day long. And before I grill it, she, you know, she comes back, she says, well, did you follow the, the recipe that I gave you? And I said, of course I did, honey. I followed the recipe, but I just added one other ingredient. What'd you do that for? Because, you know, anything, you add a little garlic to anything, it makes it better. You know, that's, and she says to me, <laughs> she says, you didn't need to do that. You didn't need to add anything to that recipe. It was perfect without it. You know, sometimes you can add to a recipe, it could enhance it, or it could ruin it. But let's just say it ruins it, right? But you know, if you ruin a recipe by adding something to it, it's not the end of the world. It might be the end of your meal, but not the end of the world. But what happens if you add another person to a marriage? That is, having a marital affair. You add another person to that relationship. Now this is devastating to the marriage. And the betrayed spouse will say something like this, wasn't I enough for you? Wasn't I perfect for you? Why did you have to add something else to this marriage? Wasn't I just enough? As bad as that is, it's even worse when a Christian says to another fellow Christian, somebody who's just come to faith in Christ, and says, you know, I am so glad that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you know really what you really need to be a true Christian, you need to add these things in your life. Do this, don't do that, and then you'll be a true Christian. If you do that kind of addition, that is eternally devastating. Oh, that's much worse. And see, that is precisely what is happening in Acts 15. There are a group of Jewish Christians who are going to these other Gentile Christians saying, look, you've got to add to your faith certain requirements. And that is, you know, if they had succeeded in that, we wouldn't be here today. Yeah. We would not be here today. You see, it raises the question, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus sufficient for our salvation? Let me 
ask you this. How would you know if you're adding to the gospel? And you go, I don't add to the gospel. I got the gospel clear. Well, do you have the gospel clear in your mind and in your heart? Have you ever added to it? And if so, why? Why do we do it sometimes inadvertently, unconsciously, sometimes very intentionally? Why do we do such things? And those are the things I want to explore with you this morning. Under two headings, the demand for law and liberty of grace. So first of all, the demand for law. You see in verses, you see that in verse 1 and 5. Remember, Paul and Barnabas have been on their uh, missionary journey, what they call the first missionary journey. They've been in, in, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They've been going to all these different cities. And you remember how they go into one city, they go in city after city. If there's a synagogue, what do, they, what do they do? They go and preach the gospel in the synagogues. So what did they see? They found that God was bringing Jews in these synagogues to faith in Christ. So Jews are coming to faith in Christ. But who else is coming to faith in Christ? God-fearing Gentiles. Right? Gentiles, you know, they're just non-Jews. That's the other category from a Jewish perspective, right? It could be Greeks, it could be Romans, it could be, you know, us. Right? And, but, but see, these God-fearing Gentiles, what would happen? They were going to the synagogue Alright, as well. They, they, maybe they weren't, uh, proselytes, they weren't completed Jews, right? They weren't completely Jews, but they had adopted Jewish customs and Jewish practices. They understood the Torah, they respected the law of God. They were in the synagogue, and so those people also came to faith in Christ. But there was a third group of people that you need to know. These are other Gentiles who were not God-fearing initially. They didn't go to the synagogue. They didn't adopt Jewish practices and customs. They were pagans. And yet God brought them to faith in Christ. You see, these Gentiles, that group started to grow. They were baptized, but they weren't circumcised. They were... You know, brought to faith in Christ. They were following Christ, but they weren't following the food laws. Now, that's that third group, these Gentiles who didn't have this Jewish customs they adopted, that's the group that becomes a problem, at least for Jews in Jerusalem. You see, when Paul and Barnabas give this report and, and people started to hear about how all these Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ and the Jews, Jewish men, and it says in the text Pharisees and later on in another chapter says those who are zealous for the law, they were upset. So miles away in the mother church in Jerusalem, these people are getting disturbed. These Jewish, upright Jewish men are getting disturbed. How can these Gentiles, these who are spiritually polluted, defiled, who cannot go and worship God in the temple, these who have been ostracized, not part of the people of God historically, how can they be part of the people of God? How are they to be cleansed? See, that's how they're thinking. And so we see in verse 1. So you can imagine this now. So these Jewish men, these Pharisees, they come up from Jerusalem. They, they, they uh, go up to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas are. Okay, In verse 1. But someone came down from Judea and were, reaching, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There you go. Here's a requirement. For salvation, you've got to be circumcised. Drop down to verse 5. Now they're in, later on, they're in Jerusalem. 
that some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and says, it is necessary to circumcise them, those Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So here, imagine this. They've gone to Antioch. They're having conversations with perhaps some Gentiles there in Antioch because the Antiochian church was predominantly Gentile. And you can imagine, I imagine this kind of conversation. You know, this Jewish guy from Jerusalem comes up and says, I am so glad that uh, you've come to faith in Christ. I just rejoice in the Lord that you've come to faith in Christ. Um, But I want you to be a real Christian. Just like me. I don't want you to miss out on the blessing of being a part of the the covenant people of God. See, if you are truly saved, if you're truly a part of the covenant people of God, then you need to take this a step further. You need to be circumcised because why? From a Jewish perspective, circumcision is the sign of the covenant, the sign of belonging to the people of God. So how can they become a part of the people of God without receiving the sign? And you also have to follow the laws of Moses. And surely we can think about the moral law, but I think what's more in view is the ceremonial law, the food laws. You know, are you eating kosher? Are you worshiping on certain day? You know, are you following the holy days and the festivals? So they're demanding. They're demanding that these Gentiles be circumcised and observe the Mosaic law in addition to faith in Christ. It was necessary. If I were a Jew from Jerusalem, I, I think I would think this way. It makes sense to me. This is what I grew up with, right? This is what I thought all along that the only way that anybody could be cleansed is if they were circumcised, if they were male, if they obeyed the clean laws that Moses had written about in the book of Leviticus. I can understand that they were well-meaning, but they misunderstood the gospel. They misunderstood the gospel. Can you put up the slide, please? Next slide. Do you know who this is? Some of you who understand some of children's literature, right? You know, this is the Grinch. The Grinch who stole Christmas, right? You know, who tried to steal Christmas. This despicable, you know, um, scaly green, you know, uh, skinned creature with large eyes with a puny heart, Dr. Sue says, right? Uh, who lived, you know, above Whoville. And what does he do? On Christmas Eve, he goes down into Whoville, you know, into the home of Cindy Lou and the other Who's in Whoville. And what does he do? He steals the presents and Christmas trees and ornaments and garlands and Christmas food, anything that has to do with festivities. Why? Because he's attempting to steal from them the joy of the celebration of Christmas. And the moment you or I or anybody takes away from what Jesus has done or adds to what Jesus has done, you become a Grinch. You become a Grinch. You rob, we end up robbing people of the joy of salvation that is 100% grace. Not 99.9% and 1.1% that you contribute. 100% a gift of God. 
is the moment you add something and all of a sudden the character salvation somehow is dependent on you and what you do. And so what do Paul and Barnabas do? What every good Christian ought to do in this case, you have a fight. <laughs> you enter a debate. You dispute. And, and Luke writes it in his kind of a, a way we, we, we look at it. We say, he says, there was no small dissension. <laughs> no small dissension. That's like, no, there was a big debate between Paul and Barnabas and these Jewish leaders. Because they understand. They know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Punto. Period. Nothing else. You know what? You would think it would get resolved, but it doesn't. They have this debate. It doesn't get resolved. So the leaders in the church in Antioch decide to send Paul and Barnabas and others to Jerusalem, to the mother church in Jerusalem, to meet with the other apostles and elders and leaders and to settle once and for all this issue. Is it Jesus plus something or is it Jesus plus nothing? That's the question. And so... This is the big chapter, really, in Acts. This is a critical moment as the gospel is advancing. And it takes, and we'll we'll look at this more later on. But here's this Jerusalem council, and they're going to decide on this. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you add to the gospel? Of course, no. (laughs) We all say no, because we got it all clear. Right? Most days we have it clear. But if you ever, let's say you and I don't, because we're part of Las Tierras, we got the gospel clear, we don't add to it, right? But just, just hypothetically imagine that somebody else came to you and said, you know, I'm so glad that you, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but have you been baptized by immersion? Because that's the only way that you can really be a Christian. You see, because the easiest parallel to circumcision would be baptism, right? But let's, let's ask another question. Let's say someone says to you, are you a real Christian? Well, yes, I am. So you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes. But do you drink alcohol? See, real Christians don't drink beer. Why? That probably rules out most of us. Oh, you're a real Christian. Oh, then you do not smoke. Right? You don't smoke. Cigarettes, that is. Right? Oh, women. Oh, women. Are, are you real Christian women? Oh, you don't wear pants. You only wear skirts. I hope this is beginning to sound familiar because you probably have heard this in other places, right? All right. Oh, you have kids? Okay, I'm going to step on toes here. You have kids? A real Christian will not only believe in Jesus, but you are homeschool. Holy homeschool. <laughs> Holy homeschool. <laughs> You're a real Christian? You're a real Christian? You believe in Jesus? Oh, but you don't sing those praise songs, do you? Only hymns from the 17th and 18th century, please. <laughs> Oh, now I'm really going to get really messy with you. You're a real Christian. How did you vote in November? 
Oh! You cannot be a Democrat and be a real Christian, some would say. And others, you cannot be a Republican and be a real Christian. Do you see how we add? And you know what happens? And you know why? You might say, okay, they are Christian, but you know what happens? In your mind, you go, they are second rate. They are second rate. And that's how you know you've added to the gospel, you Grinch. You're Grinch. The gospel does not allow additions, ands, or pluses. It is Jesus plus nothing. Nothing. As much as you like to tell your sons and daughters and neighbors, just do this and things will be better. And you'll know Jesus. Nothing else but Jesus. It's hard to stay there, isn't it? And we slip down the slope oftentimes. It's Jesus alone who brings us to God. It is not our doing, no matter how moral and how religious it might be. It is not what you do. It is what Jesus has done in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. Punto. Nothing else. See, in contrast to demands, placing demands of the law on people, the gospel is the liberty that we come, this freedom that we come to know by the grace of God. And that just takes us to the second point. You see this in verses 7 through 11. Here's this delegation, Paul and Barnabas and others. They're traveling from Antioch uh, to Jerusalem. Can you put the next slide up? There's this a map just so you can see it and visualize it. So you see where Antioch is off to the right, to the front, up to the top. Okay, they go through Syria. All right, that's in Syria, Phoenicia, Samaria, and they go to Jerusalem. They arrive there, and along the way, Paul and Barnabas stop and they talk with churches, other disciples, and the people are excited. There's great joy because of the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. They get to Jerusalem. And what happens? There's some debate. They start in the Jerusalem council to begin the debate. They have the discussion. In verse 7, we see that Peter stands up. Peter stands up and he speaks. And there are three things I want to note in his speech. Now, later on, Paul and Barnabas are going to speak, and then James is going to speak, and we'll look at that on another Sunday. But remember, remember Peter. Remember who he is, okay? As he, as he speaks this, because he's, he's a Jew. I mean, he grew up as a Jew. The Lord got a hold of his life. And then he has his vision of this unclean animals, right? And, and the voice that says, kill and eat. And he goes, no, I've never done that. I'm not going to do that. And then God pushes him and goes to Cornelius. About 10 years earlier, this Cornelius is a Roman centurion, and, and Peter goes into Cornelius' house, and this is unheard of before, that a Jew would go into a Gentile's house. So, so God has been working in Peter, and so Peter stands up. All right? And the first thing that I want us to notice is the gospel does not make external distinctions. Look in verses 7 through part of 9. Here's Peter, where he says, He says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, 
bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them. You see, He's recalling how when He went to Cornelius' house, how the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was poured out on Gentile Cornelius and his household. You know, and Peter thinks about this. Was Cornelius circumcised? No. Did he also, you know, start to uh, follow the food laws? No. No, but yet he received the Holy Spirit. So Peter's argument is, can't you see? They received the Holy Spirit just as us Jews did on the day of Pentecost. All right? And it means that God accepted them without making any distinction any cultural or racial distinction. He didn't discriminate. God didn't discriminate based on culture, based on the fact that they were Jew or not Jew. It had nothing to do, their Jewishness had nothing to do with what, you know, them receiving the Holy Spirit. God didn't require them to adopt Jewish food laws or even to be circumcised to receive the Holy Spirit. It did not make any difference if they ate morcilla. It did not make any difference if they ate cochinita pibil. It did not make any difference if they ate tacos al pastor. It didn't make any difference if they didn't ritually wash their hands. Because God was not looking on the outside. He wasn't looking at these external things that we so often see. But rather, what does the text say in verse 8? That God saw their faith in their hearts. God saw that they believed. Why? Why did God see that? Because God had placed the faith there. God had placed the faith. It was a gift of faith that God had given to them. And God, in response to His own work of grace, pours out His Holy Spirit upon them. So they don't, these Gentiles don't have to become Jews to be Christians. And Mexicans don't have to be Americans to be Christians. And Americans don't have to be Koreans to be Christians. Well, I'm at it. Nosotros los Latinos, us Latin people, we don't even have to be punctual to be a Christian. I want you to hold that thought because we're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. There's, there's something else that guides this, all right? We're talking about our salvation. And if you want to say to me, look, you're not a real Christian because you're not punctual. I know you'd like to say that sometimes. <laughs> all right? But you don't want to go there. Okay, so the gospel doesn't make external distinctions. Secondly, the gospel cleanses us. It's, it's really kind of amazing that, that, that Peter would say this, the second part of verse 9. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Uh, he's thinking, you know, he grew up like every good Jew back then, right? That Gentiles are unclean, they're spiritually polluted, they're defiled. There is no way. I mean, these are people who are you know, considered dogs, right? Uncircumcised dogs. All right? Just spiritually filthy. And, and Jews did not want to have any relations, for the most part, with these Gentiles. You know, and so, but Peter says, you know, they were cleansed. They were made clean, but not by circumcision. 
not by obeying these laws and these rules and these rituals, but by faith in Christ. It's their union with Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done that makes them clean. See, the truth of the matter is, is that circumcision, that bloody ritual, and all those laws in the book of Leviticus that all of you guys read every Sunday, I'm sure. Right? <laughs> and there's just all those sacrifices. What was all that intended to do? God was preparing His people these, these, these things were foreshadowing Jesus and what He would come to do. That Jesus would shed His blood. That Jesus would be cut off at the cross so that we might be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Because it's not the blood of bulls and goats that cleanses us. Not at all. You know, I understand. I sometimes meet people who profess to be Christian and I just want to wring their necks. And I want to say, just do this. Just do this. And it takes every Holy Spirit fiber inside of me to restrain myself and not impose another law. But I just think it would help them. They would be cleaner. Their lives would be more together. See, that's the problem. We want to fix people. And God has come to save people. And His Son. Do you really think that somebody's going to be a cleaner Christian if they sing only hymns? Don't answer that. Do you think someone's going to be a cleaner Christian if they don't smoke? Do you know in Spain we had this wonderful thing because there, the evangelical church, you know, no, you don't smoke. Christians don't smoke. And then all the Christians would come down from Holland. They're all of them are smoking. <laughs> also, they're not hung up about this because they understand that's not of the essence of the gospel. No, it's Jesus plus nothing that makes us clean. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing else. And thirdly, the gospel takes burdens off. Peter says in verse 10, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? <laughs> he, says, he says, look, you're placing on them. You want to place on them this yoke, all these laws, these rituals, these regulations, circumcision. But don't you understand? We haven't even been able to keep those. We have we said, generations, hundreds and thousand plus years, and we haven't been able to keep them perfectly this is a burden for us. Why are we putting this burden on other people? Do you understand that when you add to what Jesus has done, it's a burden that you've placed on somebody else? And sooner or later, they're going to fall down under the weight of that burden. Some of you have read the book by John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, an allegory. It tells the story of a man named Christian who leaves a city of destruction, is on a journey to the celestial city, in part of the story, he meets Mr. Worldly Wiseman. Okay. And Mr. Worldly Wiseman sees Christian, and he sees that Christian has this burden on his back. And uh, he's concerned. He says, tell me, how are you going to get rid of that burden? And Christian tells him, well, evangelists told me that if I, I need to go to the wicked gate, and I need to enter through the wicked gate. It really is the narrow gate in biblical language, Jesus, right? And that's when the burden will come off. 
But of course, Mr. Worldly Wiseman says, you know, let me give you a bit of counsel and advice, Christian. Because I, I want you to be rid of this burden. And he says, okay, tell me, what is your counsel? He says, go to the village of morality. Okay. Where you will meet a gentleman by the name of Mr. Legality. And he has skill to help you remove your burdens from your shoulders. Christian listens and he says, well, okay, sounds like a good idea, sounds like good advice. So he starts to go up the hill to Mr. Legality's house. But all of a sudden, as he's trucking up the hill, he finds it's a lot harder than he ever imagined. It seemed so high and he felt that the hill would just fall on his head and the truth of the matter, the burden was getting heavier and heavier and he just stopped. He couldn't go on. You see, this is a good picture of you and me whenever we take a well-meaning rule and place it as a burden on someone's life so that they might be saved, they might be accepted and loved by God if they just do this thing. It's a burden that none of us can bear. And sometimes you go, well, it just seems so right. I mean, it's religious. It's good. It's moral. It's a good idea. It's good advice. It's good counsel. You know, your good works. You have to understand, there is a place for good works. Okay? But let me, and you've heard this before from others, you know, religious people will say this. If you obey... God will accept you, right? If you obey the rules, God will accept you. But the gospel is not that at all. The gospel is God accepts you through what Jesus has done in Christ, punto, and his response to what God has done in Christ for you, now you want to obey. Now the motivation is out of love for him who saved you. It's not in order to be saved, but now you want to express your gratitude to this one who has given his life for you. See, that's the Christian gospel message. See? See, Jesus has come, my brothers and sisters. The gospel we proclaim is a gospel that takes burdens off the hearts and the souls of people. It takes burdens off do you know what it's like to live with a burden of trying to prove yourself to God? Some of you have done that for years. Do you know what it's like to live with this burden of trying to meet God's expectations and standards? Do you know what it's like to fail in those expectations and standards? Do you know the burden that creates? Do you know how crushed you are? How depressed you get spiritually? Do you know the burden that people live with when they go around this question, am I good enough for you, God? Am I good enough for you? That is a burden that no one can stand very long. And Jesus has come to take that burden off. And he says, I make you acceptable to God by my righteous life that I credit to you. Not your moral life, my life. I take off the burden of the guilt and the shame of all the awful things you have thought and done in your life. I removed that burden. I took it upon myself at the cross of Calvary. I bore it for you. 
No, this Jesus has come to take burdens off. And Peter has it clear. And so in verse 11, he summarizes it all by saying, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. (laughs) See, the gospel is of grace. And what that means is our salvation is not earned, is not worked for. We don't work for it. Jesus worked for it. He obtained it. We don't work for it. It's, It's free. It's unmerited. And in our individualistic, workaholic society, that's hard. That's why we slip off one side or the other. No, the gospel is a gift that frees us. Hallelujah. I don't ever, ever want you or me to any Christian to put a burden, to make it sound like the gospel is something that somebody has to work for. It is what Jesus has accomplished. He said, it is finished. It is finished. And that's where we rest. Hallelujah. That's where we rest. That he's done it all. So this begs a question. Why is it then that at times we want to add? Because we do. Why is it we want to add to the gospel? Let me, to get to that, let me ask you this question. How secure are you in Jesus Christ? How secure are you in Jesus Christ? To the degree that you are utterly secure in what Jesus has accomplished for you, so that through His work you are perfectly acceptable and loved and delighted in by God. To that degree you will rejoice and rest. But when we're not resting there, when we are insecure about what Jesus has accomplished, we're insecure and thinking, well, maybe what Jesus has done is not enough. That's, that insecurity will lead you to make a list of do's and don'ts. It will. Now, again, there are do's and don'ts, but they come after after one has been saved as a way of expressing our love and gratitude to God, but not as a way of salvation. Uh, Jeff went to seminary, Gordon-Conwell, and there's a church history professor there. Uh, at least I don't know if he's still there, uh, Richard Loveless. And he, re- and he wrote a, uh, in his book on this uh, about revival. And uh, he says, you know, sometimes the idea of justification by grace, that we're made acceptable to God and made right with God simply by the grace, period. He says it makes people feel uneasy. Right? It makes some people uneasy. And, and all of a sudden it leads some people to an unconscious need for lists of clean and unclean activities. And he gives an example of Tertullian. Tertullian was a third century church father. And Tertullian had a list. Alright? And, uh, and he ruled out on his list certain activities that real Christians don't do. So here, here's a part of it. What do real Christians don't do? The theater. Sorry, Jesse. No theater. Why? Because of its origins in pagan worship. No dancing. Oof. I know some of you guys love to dance. Why? Why no dancing? Because it might inflame ill-controlled sexual passions. Right? A lot of babies are born on the dance floor. And the third thing he says, no cosmetics. No makeup. 
Woo! Man. If God meant you to smell like a flower, he would have given you a crop of them on your head. That's what he said. See, there's, there's a tendency to, to, to want to make lists, right? Because you, th- you think that's going to help. You think that's just going to help that person. It doesn't. It really doesn't. Let me give you a, a more modern example. This is sad. I was listening to a pastor, Ray Cortez, out of Florida. He preached a sermon, I guess some years ago, in which he used the Bible to say that men with long hair and earrings were sinning. He really sought to justify it biblically. I mean, later on, he realized that was foolish, and it was not good, not right. It was not biblical. But the result was that those men in the congregation that had long hair, they left and never came back. There was one guy who did talk with him later on, and he says, he says, you changed the whole atmosphere in church for me and my family that day. I could feel their stares when you said those words in your sermon. He says, I can't come back. Because as far as these people are concerned, at best, I'll be a second-rate Christian. I wonder if in your mind, in my mind, we have categories of Christians. First-rate, second-rate, third-rate. You're long gone. But you know what that says? That says something about your perspective of the work of Christ. Richard Lovelace says, those who are not secure in Christ cast about for spiritual life preservers with which to support their confidence. Are there any spiritual life preservers? And he lists some of them. He says, our own righteousness could be our race, membership in a party, familiar social ecclesiastical patterns, culture. We are to cling to Jesus and Jesus alone. It is Jesus plus nothing. And we can praise God that these men, when they gathered in Jerusalem, you know, 2,000 years ago, that the Holy Spirit led them to this glorious conclusion. See, the good news of the gospel is precisely that. It's news of what Jesus has accomplished. It's not advice about what you do. Right? You've heard that before. It's not counsel of how you connect to God. It's what Jesus has done. It is finished. It is Jesus plus nothing. Will you consider? Will you rejoice? Will you rest? Will you delight? Will you proclaim this gospel of Jesus alone? He is sufficient. He is enough. Gloriously enough. Perfectly sufficient Wonderfully adequate for you and for me and for every sinner. Think about that. There is nothing, there is nothing that Jesus lacks. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours in Christ Jesus. He is your life. Jesus is your bread. Jesus is your hope. Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus is your refuge. Jesus is your light. He is your life, your peace, your portion, your substitute, your freedom, your fountain, your wisdom. He is your standard. He is your way. He is your example. He is your door, the sun, the shield, the reward, the strength, the song, the sanctification. He is your resurrection. He's your redeemer. He is your teacher. He is your shepherd. He's your friend. He is the truth. He's the temple. He is your Savior. He is your God. Is He not enough? Oh, He's enough. Let's pray. Oh, Lord.
Enable us to rest, to rejoice, to rejoice in you, the great Savior. We have no other name but the name of Jesus. We call out on his name and proclaim that name that is above all names. Lord, help us to have clearly fixed in our own soul that Jesus is more than enough for all kinds of sinners, even sinners like us. For we ask in his glorious name. Amen.